Good morning, church. This is a uh, this is a big week in the Harris house. Uh, just kind of let you know, this is something in church history today that has never been done before, and who knows, it may never be done again. Uh, three Harrises are in the pulpit this morning. Uh, my oldest brother uh, is a semi-retired Alliance pastor um, you know, for over 40 years. He's the interim pastor at the Cornerstone Alliance Church in Roanoke, Indiana. He is preaching this morning. I've been tagged to, to fill in here and preach here while Eric is out of town. And my daughter uh, was asked a few months ago uh, if she would preach on the life of David uh, at her church in Muncie. And so she's preaching 8.30, and 11.30 services this morning. Um, so possibly at the exact same time, all three of us will be in the pulpit at the same time. I don't know if that's good or bad. Uh, God will determine that and sort it all out at the end. Uh, and also, I give a shout out to my dad. Uh, he celebrates 92nd birthday Wednesday. So we're all getting together. You know, we determined, we determined when he turned 80, we need to start celebrating all of them. Because you just don't know when it's going to be the last one. So uh, we've been doing this 12 years. We've celebrated his last birthday. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll see. He is a uh, believer loves the Lord, uh, can't wait to get there and see him face to face. So uh, every birthday is truly a celebration. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, we, Sarah and I went out with uh, another couple of some friends and we went to Ford's garage. Anybody been to Ford's garage? Give me a shout because I can't see you. If you raise your hands, I have no idea. Just there you go. That's what I need. I need the woo. Uh, we went to Ford's garage, Hamilton Town Center, great place. They're known for burgers. Um, I don't know if they call gourmet burgers, craft burgers, whatever. It's not just your, you know, McDonald's burger. It's not your Wendy's burger. It's not even your Five Guys burger. Um, these are odd burgers. And as I was looking down the menu, because if you go there, you kind of need to eat a burger. Um, and uh, they had one called the Jiffy Burger. Anyone ever eaten the Jiffy Burger? At I got one. The Jiffy Burger is a hamburger with peanut butter. That's what's on it. There, there's, no, there's nothing else. It's just a hamburger with peanut butter. And I'm like, that's mine. That's what I'm getting. Nobody at the table agreed with me. But it has now become the newest ingredient on a hamburger for me. Um, in fact, I'm going to try the next time chunky peanut butter and see if that adds anything to it. But there are all kinds of, when you get a hamburger, each one of us probably has different likes, different things we want on it, different ingredients that we add to it. Some want everything. Someone, I, my best friend in high school, we would go to Wendy's, and Wendy's, of course, at that point, this was 100 years ago, you could, you step up and you just told him, you know, you rattled off everything you wanted on it. He got up and he said, I want a hamburger with ketchup only. Like, how do you eat a hamburger with just ketchup? And to this day, 100 years later, that's what he eats. Ketchup only hamburger. So there's a lot of different ingredients that, that different people like on their hamburgers. Now, when I think of the Christian life, there are two essential in ingredients in the life of every believer the Word of God. I think we all agree with that. And prayer. And I think we all agree with that. If we have the Word of God and combine that with prayer, we are off to a really good start. 
If we develop the disciplines of study, if we develop the disciplines of prayer, we are off to a really good start. In fact, we are to be known as people of the word. Christians, followers of Jesus, are to be known as people of prayer. It's our first work. There's a newer song out, newer to me, I don't know, I think it's been around for a while. Um, It's called I Speak Jesus. And it's by Charity Gale, and we're actually going to sing that at the end. I asked Bryce, I said, can we do this? Actually, I wanted to do it right before the sermon and right after, and we both agreed that's probably too much of a good thing. So I said, we'll just do it once and and be good with it. But here's what the lyrics, here's what it says. And I want us to, to, to get the lyrics in our minds now. When we sing it later, it says, I just want to speak the name of Jesus over every heart and every mind because I know there is peace within your presence. I speak Jesus. I just want to speak the name of Jesus till every dark addiction starts to break. Declaring there is hope and there is freedom, I speak Jesus. I just want to speak the name of Jesus over fear and all anxiety to every soul held captive by depression, I speak Jesus. Because your name is power. Your name is healing. Your name is life. Break every stronghold, shine through the shadows, burn like a fire. There is such powerful truth in those words. It is an incredible combination of Scripture speaking truth and prayer wrapped up into worship. And when we combine the word and prayer and worship, things are going to happen. God doesn't sit idly by when his church gathers around the word, enters into times of worship, and enters into deep, meaningful prayer. God moves. God's designed things to work that way. And Jesus, his name, his person, who he is, is the word. He is the power behind the prayer. He is the reason we worship. Scripture is filled with stories of men and women of prayer who experienced incredible works of God. Nothing they did on their own. It was only God's response to their heartfelt prayer. Abraham, read throughout his life. Jacob wrestled with God all night. Naomi, Ruth, Elijah called down fire from heaven when he battled the the prophets of the false god Baal. Samson prayed and his strength was restored and Remember, he he knocked down the temple and and destroyed the false worship that was going on. Job prayed. His life was turned around. Daniel prayed and restored a nation. All throughout Scripture, you will find that when believing people pray, when believing prayer goes lifted up to God, the answer comes down. Can we say that about today? Can we say that in our own prayer life, that when we lift prayer up, the answer comes down? It would be an interesting study to go through the Bible and record what happens every time believers pray. Just start in Genesis. Every time there was a prayer lifted up, what did God do? How did it move? How did things change? What happened to the person who prayed? Prayer is a hallmark ingredient of the early church. There is a power that is present when the church gathers for prayer. And I think sometimes we take it for granted. I do. I'm I'm speaking to myself. I can't speak for all of you. But I think sometimes we take prayer for granted. But I'm reminded that with little prayer comes little power.
that the power of God is manifested in the prayers of his people. When his people come together, God moves. One thing that stands out to me about those early believers was the immediacy of their relying on prayer after Jesus' resurrection. Last week we celebrated fantastic celebration coming together and, and, and worshiping that, that we serve a risen Savior, that Jesus is alive. And while that is, is incredible, I can't imagine what it would have been like to be in those first 120 or so early church followers. That prayer became a central part of the life of the church after Jesus left. While Jesus was with them, they just talked with him in person. They had never prayed. We don't read anywhere in the Gospels when Jesus was present that they prayed. They didn't gather. Jesus didn't lead a prayer meeting. He just talked to people. They talked back. That was prayer for them. That's how we would define it, talking with Jesus, talking with God. But once Jesus leaves them, once he is no longer physically in their presence, they immediately turn to prayer. And we cannot miss the significance of that. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1. It's fitting that we go into Acts immediately following the resurrection. And of course, we're going to, and I'll mention this a little later, we're going to start a series on the life of Paul and really Acts is about so much of his life. But I want to focus in on verse 14, but in order to give context, I want to start in verse 1. Okay, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The first account I composed, and this is Luke writing, so the first account is his gospel. He wrote it to a man named Theophilus. He said, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is Peter and John and James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women the Mary, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. 
little background, Acts chapter 1 takes place about 40 days after Easter. We're just seven days after. They're 40 days after Easter. Jesus has been making appearances in crowds, uh, meeting with one-on-one. He, he appeared once to over 500 uh, believers who saw his resurrection, gave proof to his resurrection. And he continued to teach his disciples over these, these days, these 40 days. And while promised a power from the Holy Spirit, there's still a sense of uncertainty. There's still a sense of confusion within them. What is the Holy Spirit? What is this thing he's, he's talked about and he's, he's taught us about, but we still don't totally understand it. And we understand that it is the, the person of the Holy Spirit that brings power. That the Holy Spirit supplies power to every situation, every circumstance, every life that is surrendered to him. The Holy Spirit dwelling within us. But in the midst of their uncertainty, because this is the second time in a month and a half that Jesus has left them. Okay? So you've traveled with Jesus for three and a half years all around the, the area, all around the region. And you had all of your hopes and dreams put in him, and you watched him crucified, and the amount of confusion that would have happened on Good Friday. Only to be all new hope and excitement and exhilaration and promise when he appears to you resurrected. And you're thinking, okay, we're back on track. We're back in the game. Here we go. Second half, good to go. And then 40 days later, he's like, okay, I'm leaving again. Mind were con continually at that point devoted to prayer. They immediately gathered together in that upper room, those that were with them, and there's about 120. We list the, the 11 and a few of the women that were there, but there were probably about 120 that gathered. And as I said, I want to focus on verse 14 because there's two words in there that we need to understand, that we need to, to wrap our mind around. The first one is that word for prayer. The, the Greek word is prosukomai. Okay? And it literally means, the pros means toward, and the sukomai means a wish. And so this word for prayer literally means a wish toward to whomever it is you're praying. You're making a wish toward. Now we teach that praying is not a wish list. Your prayer life should never be a wish list. You don't show up to God with a wish list, but that's exactly what the word means. It is a wish. We also know, and this is where we have to understand and get out of our own mind as a wish list, is that it is, our wish is brought in line with God's will. Throughout Scripture, it's ask anything in my name. Ask anything according to God's will, and it will happen. You see, prayer in the will of God, God moves. This is Jesus in the garden. Jesus in the garden says, I wish this cup be removed. Father, if you can take this cup, I wish that it were gone. My desire would be to come up with some other way, yet not my will, but yours, brought into submission. His wish brought into submission to the will of God. And that's hard for us to come to God with a wish list and then go, hands off. Your will be done. Here's what I would love to see. Here's what I think needs to happen. Here's what I would love to have happen you do what you want, you do what you know is best, and take hands off. Your will be done. 
But the, more, the word I most want to emphasize this morning is that continually devoted. It's a longer Greek word. I'm not going to try to pronounce it. And it simply means to adhere to something, to attach to something, to be devoted to something, to be in a constant readiness for something, to be busily, to be busily engaged in something. There's a sense of constant action. You know, we're, we're told to pray without ceasing. That's this idea, that we are always at the ready to pray. We are always in that communion, in that connection with God, that our spirit is always talking with his spirit. It has with it this idea of not giving up. And this is where we're focused this morning. I, I entitled this this morning, A, a Prevailing Wish. Because that's, that's what these two words kind of bring together. It's a prevailing prayer. It's, a, it's prevailing. It's, it's not giving up. It's over and over. It's dogging God with this request. But what is prevailing prayer? There's a book entitled Mighty Prevailing Prayer. I want to recommend it to you. Wesley Duell is the author. Phenomenal book. It will change possibly the way you pray or it will just add more energy to what you are already doing. He says this, prevailing prayer is God's ordained means for extending his kingdom, for defeating Satan and his empire of darkness and evil, and for, for fulfilling God's eternal plan and bringing to effect his good will on earth. This is praying for something. Prevailing prayer is praying for something until you get an answer. Until God moves. Until that thing happens or you get the no and you know, okay, I need to go on. That was not God's will. We, we move on. But it is not, okay, I'm going to pray for this. And then, you know, there are times when, when, you, when you, and I've done this sitting in small group. I've done this sitting in prayer meeting. We, we formulate the list, right? We share prayer requests. We formulate the list. Then we go and we pray for them. So we pray for, for a list that, that was shared in small group on Tuesday night. Most of the time by Wednesday evening, I've kind of forgotten what was on that list. And I probably only remember one or two. And that's what I might pray for on Thursday or Friday. And, and then we come back together on Tuesday and, oh, yeah, here's the list. How, how? That's not prevailing prayer. Prevailing prayer is that it is on my mind and I cannot get rid of it. And I will prevail. I will pray every day. I will be praying moment and moment as it's brought to my mind. I will not let it go. I stick to it like a dog with a bone. You ever try to get a bone away from a dog? I mean a good bone, not a chew bone, not a plastic thing. They spit those out and give them to you readily. I mean one with meat on it. That's prevailing prayer. That when God has given us this, this thing, this, this passion, this desire, this wish for something, we will not let it go. It's the father and mother who daily, persistently prays for their unbelieving child until they believe. Will not let it go. It is a daily, heart-wrenching prayer before God, a crying out to Him with our everything. It's the wife who daily, persistently prays for healing for the husband. It's the person who lost a job who daily, persistently prays for that new job. 
the new pastor and wife who daily persistently pray for a house so they can move to the community that they serve and don't have to drive from Muncie every day. prevailing until we get an answer just by the way we're putting an offer on the house this afternoon so pray don't applaud we haven't gotten it yet that might come next week but when God says yes prevailing prayer does not rest until the answer is received until a piece about it is there until we prevail it's wrestling it's work it's hard work it's a sense of urgency in our prayer. These are things you don't need to put on a prayer list because you're not going to forget them. Many times it's the things that are at the very heart of God, which is why we combine word and prayer. Because the word reveals to us the heart of God and enables us to know how to prevail, what to pr pray about, what to have our heart shaped by. In all honesty, a lot of our prayer life isn't prevailing prayer. It's lists. Sometimes I go into a time of prayer and it is suddenly ADHD praying. Have you ever done that? You're like all over the place. I'm praying for this, oh, and this, and this, oh, squirrel. And, and we're like all over, and we spend 10 or 15 minutes, and we're like, eh, okay, I'm done. I, I haven't prevailed about anything. I barely even brought things up. And that's not bad. That's prayer. That's not bad. But we seem scattered, not grounded, not rooted, not really prevailing over anything, not our heart being bent and, and crushed for something. Prevailing prayer is focused. It's that, that, that dog that eyes a squirrel in, in its yard and will not be denied. Have you ever tried to call your dog in? Our dog's sitting on the porch and there's a squirrel suddenly down, crouch position, ready to go. You can call that dog in the house until the cows come home, that dog's not moving. Intent. That's prevailing prayer. But so many times our prayers get hindered. We get into that ADHD. We get scattered all over. We give up. We don't really dive in. We don't, you know, if I just, I'll read through my list. What hinders? Our prayers. What are things I need to be aware of? Three things I want to give you this morning. First thing that hinders our prayer is a lack of faith. We pray not really believing. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 17, verses 19 and 20, when the disciples were unable to cast out a demon, okay, they, they had come, that Jesus had sent them out. There was a man demon-possessed. The disciples all tried. They tried everything they could to cast that demon out. Nothing happened. And they said, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. That's a hard saying. That's a tough saying. For the disciples who had followed Jesus sent out, and they had seen victories. They had seen things happen. They, they came back once rejoicing that, that they had cast out demons, that they had healed the sick, that God had done incredible things. Why couldn't we do this? And he said, your faith is too small. 
Did our child not accept Christ because dad didn't have enough faith? Was the husband not healed because the wife didn't have enough faith? Did the person not get the job because they didn't have enough faith? Those, I'm going to say no to every one of those. I've heard people say if you just had more faith, God would. I don't think that's what this means in the littleness of faith. Maybe he's saying it isn't the size of your faith, but it's the object of your faith. You pray, but you don't submit your will to mine. You see, when we submit, when we don't submit our will to God's will, the faith is in me. It's in what I want, what I think is best, what I think I can do, what I think I can accomplish. God, just kind of power me through this. I can do it. That's little faith. That's littleness of faith. That's faith in the wrong thing. That's not faith in an almighty God. That's faith in my abilities with God kind of supporting me and pushing me along and helping me out. <laughs> you ever pray that way? Pray for God to help you? That's not what prevailing prayer is. God move. I can't do any of this. I can't. Eric said it Sunday morning. I can't. He can. So we mightily prevail in prayer. Submitting our will to his. You don't have that God will do what is best. You don't believe. You don't have faith that God's going to do what is best. So God, here's what I need. Here's what I want. You still want to control the outcome. Most of our prayer life is me still controlling the outcome. Let me tell you a little bit about faith. This is something that we've discovered, Sarah and I have discovered. We talked about that this week is in, in this sermon. I usually run, she doesn't need to be here. She's heard this throughout the week. She gets updates on where we're at and what's happening. But faith tends to come in three stages. Stage one faith is this believes when there are favorable emotions, all right? I believe this can happen. I believe it will. Everything's favorable, favorable circumstances. I think this is going to work out. Okay, it's getting up in the morning, you've got an outside, you know, you're going to go to the zoo with your kids and the sun is shining and you say, okay, I'm going to pray that the sun keeps shining. Weather forecast says it's, there's not a chance of rain. That's stage one faith. I believe God's going to just keep the sun shining. Okay, everything says that's what's going to happen. Stage two faith is believing in the absence of feelings, but in the presence of truth. There's a big storm cloud rolling in. Truth is, it might rain. But I'm going to believe, even in the case of circumstances aren't all, my feeling isn't all right there, I'm going to believe that God is going to do this thing. Because the Word says God is going to do this. Again, we put Word and prayer back together. God, the Word says God is, and we're going to believe He is, even when the circumstances don't necessarily line up. Stage three faith is a form of faith that believes God and his word when circumstances, when emotions, when appearances, when people, when human reason are all thrown aside. All say to the contrary. When everything is lining up exactly wrong, when there is no hope, when there is no human reason to believe. But God said, 
I'm standing on that regardless of what I see out in front of me. I believe God's going to move in this community regardless of what I see happening in the world around me. I believe that God wants to, to reach my neighbor regardless of what I see happening in their house, in their lives. I believe that God wants, regardless, that's prevailing, and I'm going to prevail in prayer. I'm going to every day bring that and believe. It's not a lack of belief. So sometimes we pray, but we allow the circumstances and the emotions, the human reasoning to sway our trusting God and his word. It's Peter getting out of the boat. Okay, you remember the story? The disciples get in the boat and they're heading to the other side. Jesus stays back and prays and then Jesus says, I better catch up. Shortest distance between two points is a straight line, so he just takes off across the water. Doesn't follow the shore like you and I would do. Or he doesn't get another boat like you and I might do. He just starts walking across the water. Why? Well, he's Jesus. He can do that. He can. And he comes up and, and the disciples see him and they're freaked out. Rightly so. This man walking on the water. They think it's a ghost. Who is it? He says, it's Jesus. I'm coming to meet up with you. Peter, being Peter, if it's you, tell me to get out of the boat and walk to where you are. And he says, do it. Peter being Peter gets out of the boat. Every bit of human reason tells him you cannot put both feet on the water and walk. Circumstance, probably experience, tells him that will not work. And he starts walking. And he's looking at Jesus. And, Jesus, and then he starts looking down at all the circumstances and all the human reason and all the ways that this is wrong and not right. And what does he do? He starts sinking. And Jesus reaches out and grabs him. Sometimes that's our prayer life. We can pray believing, and then all of a sudden, you know what? We look at the circumstance. We see that we take our eyes off of Jesus, and we forget about prevailing prayer. We forget about, you know what? It doesn't matter what is happening in the world. God is God. But God, then God. He doesn't follow the the laws of nature. He doesn't follow the laws of physics. He can walk, walk on water. He can make a man walk on water if he so chooses. What can he do in your life? What does he want to do in your neighborhood? What does he want to do in your school? What does he want to do through Eagle Church into the surrounding communities where we live, where we work, where we go to school? We pray with lack of faith. We don't really believe God's going to do anything because we don't see anything happening. We see bad stuff happening. So we pray for my safety, my security. Keep me safe when I go out into the world. Well, he'll do that. I don't know that that's really what he's asking of us. Second thing is we ask for wrong motivation. James 4, 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasure. We bring our desire, our wish list. We don't put it in line with God's desire. This is what I want. We're not considering whether it's the will of God or not. Wrong motives. We, we want what we want. 
And we usually want comfort, safety, security. I think it was on the radio or it could have been a conversation I had. I don't even remember now the source of this. But they said, What's the, where do you feel the safest? I think it was on the radio. Caleb, maybe, Air One, I don't know. Where do you feel the safest? And people were calling in, giving all the answers. I feel the safest. I feel the safest. No one said, and we were taught this in, in Bible college. No one said, I feel the safest in the center of God's will. Because that is the safest place you can be. Doesn't matter what circumstances around you. God calls you out of the boat. The safest place you can be is out of the boat. God calls you into a, a neighborhood that is, is rough and tumble. God calls you into a situation where, where you're not certain of the outcome, where you're going to confront, where you're going to be confronted, where you're going to share in, a, in an unlikely place. God calls you. That is the safest place you can be. In the center of God's will. And to ask for anything else than to be at the center of God's will is wrong motive. Our desire, our wish, has to line up with his desire, his wish. And here's the third reason. Third thing that hinders our prayers is we just simply don't ask. We don't pray. James chapter 4, verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. Sometimes we just don't pray. We definitely don't prevail in prayer. That continual devotion to something, many, many believers today lack any kind of rhythm of prayer, any kind of daily. And I don't mean, again, the wish list. That's not bad. That's not the prayer list. I'm not, I'm not downplaying that. I'm just saying there's more. We settle for less. That daily consistent wrestling Again, consider the immediacy that those first followers turned to continued prevailing prayer. That's why we pray. That's why we pray it all. Why God has given us prayer. It's why prayer is the first thing that those followers turned to. They didn't come together and develop a strategy for reaching Jerusalem. They didn't develop a strategy for how are we going to get this message out. They just gathered and prayed. Because God's got the strategy. God's got the plan. He knows we just have to align ourselves with him. God's chosen method of inviting us into what he is doing is prayer. It's the first work of the gospel. Again, Wesley Duell says this, his overarching eternal plans are unchangeable. But in working out the details, he has ordained to work in cooperation with his praying, obeying children. Okay, he has ordained to make his plans happen through the prayers and the obedience of his people. He adapts his working to your prayer and obedience. While he reserves the sovereign right to work independently, his normal plan is to work in cooperation with and through the prayer and obedience of his own. God desires, God wishes to work in a mighty way, but he has so ordained prayer as the first step on our part to get things done for the kingdom. 
He says, I've got plans. I'm going to do things. I'm going to, my Holy Spirit's going to come. There's going to be power. There's going to be changes, transformation. Communities can be changed. Everything can happen. But I'm going to do it in connection with how you pray. All revivals in church history came about from one or two people with a heart and a passion for revival sitting down and praying and prevailing continually wrestling we say we want to see revival I've heard that a lot mostly since the pandemic mostly since all the things that have been happening in our in our in our political system in our government for the last three four years I've heard this oh come Lord Jesus we want to see revival we want to see our nation change we want to see our communities come to God but how earnestly are we praying for it or are we just wishing it would happen? You see, the work of that is prayer. The work of making things happen is prayer. Are we calling our friends together for, to pray for it? Are we earnestly devoting time and intentionality to it? Setting aside time, how, how much do we dog heaven to see it happen? Paul was a man of prayer. Next Sunday, Eric's going to Started a new series on the life of Paul. I can't wait for it. I, 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 it's going to be incredible. Paul is a fascinating man with a checkered past. Those of you who are familiar with Paul's life, you know that he started out as a murderer. He was a, a Jewish zealot who went from town to town ripping Christians, followers of Jesus, those that had made that, that hit list, pulling them out of their homes, beating them, enslaving them, uh, and many times killing them. He was a terrorist until he was on his way to the city named Damascus to do the exact same thing there and God blinded him in the middle of the street and he said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Well, at that point he was Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he had that experience with God to where he completely allowed God to change and transform. He believed the truth of who Jesus was. But he was a man, and from that point on, we see over throughout the rest of the New Testament, all the letters that he wrote, that he was a man of prayer. He did incredible things. The, the missionary, four missionary journeys, the vast amount of, of space on the planet that he covered, that he preached the gospel to, but he did it all through prayer. None of it was on his own ability. He understood that. So many of his letters were written to churches that he planted. He said, I thank my God always for you. Every time I remember you in my prayers, he was a man of prayer. <clears throat> Paul was always calling the church to prayer, to corporate prayer. Something happens when a number of saints regularly gather for prayer that will never, ever happen in your individual prayer life it's not designed to <clears throat> there are times we need to be praying we have to, our own closets we have our own prayer time but there has to be times when the church comes together for the purpose of prayer for the purpose of prevailing A.B. Simpson founder of our denomination 
in his book, A Call to Prayer, says there is something in unity of spirit which we may not be able to understand, but which we must recognize as a spiritual force and a divine condition of larger blessing. I may not be able to tell you why two musical notes produce a higher melody than one, but the fact is unquestioned, and four lift us to still more sublime harmony than two. And what he's saying is that when two come together, there's so much more power, so much more blessing in that prayer than than when four come together, when an entire body comes together. There's so much more than one praying in isolation at home. We don't read often. In fact, I, I didn't really think clear through this, but I could not think of one instance in the New Testament where people were praying by themselves. It was always the church gathered that prayed. It was always two or three at the most praying or at the least praying. And when those two or three came together or an entire body of believers come together, the earth shook. Prison doors were thrown open. Things happened. Pentecost. Holy Spirit shows up in mighty ways when the church gathers to prevail in prayer. I want to invite the worship team to, to come back up and I, I just let me tell you what your next steps are from this. My wife has a passion for prayer. To see the church gathered to to come together and just pray the word of God over communities, over people. And so starting next Sunday, there's no delay in this. There's no sign up for this. There's no check the website for this. It's just show up. Every Sunday morning at 9.15 in the prayer room. Now, if you don't know where the prayer room is, it's through those double doors right over there, down the hall, through the door, and up the stairs. You can't miss it. Okay, through those doors, upstairs, prayer room. From 9.15 to 9.45, the church is going to gather to pray. What are we going to pray for? I don't know. That God shows up. That God shows up in our community. That God shows up in our lives. That God's power is is unprecedented in this area that revival comes. We're going to ask God to do what only God can do. You're all invited. If you all show up, we won't meet up there. You get 10 or 12 in that little room and it starts to get crowded. If you all show up, we'll just meet here at 915, start church a little early. Maybe someday. Prayer is when we align our will to his. 30 minutes. 30 minutes every week, the church is going to gather and begin to align our will to his. That his wish becomes our wish. And we all want him to accomplish his purpose in our life. We want him to accomplish his purpose in the world around us. What will he do? What does he want to do? What's going to come out of the church gathered for prayer? What life is going to be changed this week because we prayed? What what circumstance is going to change? What revival is going to break out because we gathered to pray and God honored? 
Who will be healed because we pray? As we begin to meet on Sunday mornings, I I believe that we will be opening the door in a fresh and new way for the Holy Spirit to do what only He can do. That at the name of Jesus, God's will be done. Not my will. That communities be changed. That God be seen, that His presence be felt, that it be known. Because there were a few that gathered and prevailed. Who, as the first church said in Acts 1.14, continually devoted themselves to prayer. Father, may you drive us to prayer, to our knees, to be a people of prayer. In Jesus' name.